Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hi, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but I'm just unhooking myself from a device that over the last half an hour has delivered the equivalent of 180 perfect pelvic floor contractions. And let me tell you, Emily, that's quite intense. So as I heard the words pelvic floor contractions, I started doing them. Presumably everybody listening has started doing them as well. Except how do you know if you're doing it right? And why are we even doing them? We are desperately triggered by the phrase pelvic floor, but we don't have a proper grasp on what they do or why they're not behaving. All we know is that our pelvic floors aren't strong enough whether it's because we're reluctant to go on trampolines, hold on for dear life when we sneeze, or worry that we're not enough when it comes to sex. I was so sad to learn that 50% of women worry about laughing in public because of leaks. Isn't that awful? Pelvic floor panic is literally dimming our joy. Now, we all talk about pelvic floors, but do we really? One in three women suffer bladder weakness in the UK. That makes it more common than hay fever. And of that 30%, one in five have been suffering for over seven years. I mean, what's wrong with us? What the hell are we doing? Enough with the conspiracy of silence. Which is why we are delighted that this podcast is brought to you by Innovo, a pelvic floor trainer made by women for women with 87% efficacy. And here's how it works. You pull on some shorts with built-in sensors, you switch it on, it recruits all the relevant muscles and you spend 30 minutes relaxing while your pelvic floor is put through its paces by its own personal trainer. So here's what a stronger pelvic floor is going to do for you. It's going to give you stronger bladder control so that trampoline will quake at the sight of you walking towards it. It's going to give you increased sensitivity during sex. Can't argue with that. It's going to give you improved posture. So maybe we'll no longer look like croissants from the side. And it's going to give you better core strength because the pelvic floor is the canopy that supports your entire core. Innovo can help you turn your pelvic floor from your nemesis into your superpower. Hello, everybody. Um, My name is Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine. But something has happened to my empathy dial and it's malfunctioning and it's at spinal tap style. It's like 11 out of 10 at the moment. (laughs) And every time someone talks to me about something, a problem or something that's upsetting them, I feel their distress so intensely that, first of all, it's quite oppressive. But secondly, I worry that I'm making their problem all about me. And I'm not sure what's happened. It's happened in the last week. And I wonder if it's because um, it makes me feel like a sort of insane woman saying this. But I wonder if it's because my cat died last week. And I really, really fucking loved that cat. And I think that I must be grieving. And, you know, I've never experienced animal grief before. And it's different, but it's definitely there. So I'm really, really raw. How are you, Em? Oh, gosh. Oh, um, well, I'm absolutely fine. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But I am, um, I don't feel like I've touched the ground mm. this September. I feel like my feet are not touching the ground. I wake up really, really early and I get, you know, everything I need to do for the day. Plus then the day starts, then whatever, then the evening. And it's sort of wild. And then I crash out at 10 o'clock and there doesn't seem to be any time for me, for anybody else. I know, I used to have a picture of my week in my head. And now I don't know what's happening until I look at my diary in the evening for the next day. I can't keep a grasp on everything because it's moving so quickly. No, it's completely wild. And I just, I wonder how we're going to get through. I mean, this is only September. How is it possible? Yes, if we're, if, if we're flying, then when are we going to crash? Oh my God, yes, exactly. And, and on top of it all. On top of it all, there's the sex questions. The sex questions. The sex questions. And they are in no particular order. Well, who doesn't worry about sex? Are you getting enough sex? What even is enough sex? Yeah, exactly. Are, are you, you having good sex? Oh my God, how good is good enough? How good is good like, enough? Like, is it okay sex? Yeah. Good enough? Are you supposed to be having mind-blowing sex? Are you intimidated by sex? And as our next guest says, sex It's free, it's fun, until it isn't. Mm -hmm. We are thrilled, thrilled to welcome Susie Godson to the podcast. 
Now, Susie is one of the country's best-loved sex columnists. In fact, she was the first ever broadsheet sex columnist, and now she lives in the Saturday Times, and her fearless and frank advice is a must-read. A genuine sexpert, I just like saying that, with three books, including the sex book under her belt. Susie is also the co-founder of the Me Too app for kids aged 11 to 25, a peer support group app where young people can ask about all the awkward stuff that they can't ask anybody face to face. Now, we love her unflappable ways and her ability to look everything in the eye and genuinely help people. Susie, how are you? I'm absolutely fine, but (laughs) um, somebody sent me a photograph yesterday and it's really distressed me. I was photographed next to three women who were at least two foot shorter than me and as my 15-year-old daughter explained, I was at the end of the line on a wide-angle lens. My body image is shot to pieces. I haven't eaten since. <gasps> I didn't know you weren't meant to be at the end of the line on a wide-angle lens. Does that do funny things to you? Absolutely. Every teenager will be able to tell you that. Never again. Thank God for your 15-year-old daughter. Yes, I because my boobs are so big, if I have my picture taken, I make people stand so one of their shoulders is over each of my breasts. <laughs> And I can just poke out behind. <laughs> I, make, I make you do that, Em, don't I? Always. No, you do. You move me like we're in a war and you're using me as a... As human a shield. A human, human breast shield. shield. Yes, that's me. My part-time job. There was a, always a really funny... Kate Blanchett's husband called himself the hand because in every picture ever taken of Kate Blanchett, he would have his arm around her and then they would just crop him out and all you could see was his hand on her waist. So he's the hand. That's me. I'm just like your human breast shield. Um, <laughs> Susie, how did you get into sex? I mean, it depends if you mean personally or professionally. (laughs) Knock yourself out. We'd love to hear both. (laughs) I started out, I've had a very kind of circuitous trajectory. So I started out as a graphic designer. I did graphic design at St. Martin's and a master's at the Royal College. And I ran my own business and it was really great. And then a friend said to me, let's write a book. And I said, okay. And a group of us got together, a group of women, and we wrote a book called Women Unlimited, which was published by Penguin. This is a million years ago. The book was about a DIY guide to life for women. So it was about everything from how to fix your car, to how to divorce your husband, to how to raise your kids, to how to have sex. And the chapter on sex was in the middle of the book. And every time we went to do a press interview, the book would be creased down the centre of the spine. And it was literally the only chapter that anybody had read. And from there, I can't remember the exact um, sequence, but I got a column in The Independent on Sunday. And then I did a big book on sex with my friend. And, you know, I had terrible imposter syndrome because I thought, here I am. Writing basically from a fairly personal perspective about something that I'm not really educated about. So I went off and I did learn from the experts. I, I worked with a, an, an, an amazing old Jewish sex doctor called David Goldmeyer, who sort of mentored <laughs> me. Um, fa- fantastic. Taught me everything I know and then went away and studied. I did a master in, master's in psychology and then a PhD and... I moved to the Times in 2004, I think, and I've been there ever since. I mean, do you, do you think people make all sorts of assumptions about the wildness, adventurousness and regularity of your sex life? Well, I, I have to say, I think I'm the least sexy sex columnist <laughs> in the country. <laughs> I, um, I'm definitely um, coming at it from a more academic perspective. I mean, compared to someone like Tracy Cox, who's you know, constantly brandishing vibrators. And I, I, I think I'm, uh, I'm much more low-key in that respect. But I'm sure there is a certain amount of curiosity, but I'm so old now, that, you know. <laughs> Are there any really common problems that come up again and again and again that either involve, you know, sort of, you know, ignorance or panic or the things that, you know, you just hear again and again and again? I think um, ignorance is a really big one. <laughs> I think so many women are just really reluctant to explore their own bodies and basically you know if you don't know how to how your own body works how can you expect anybody else to so there's a a real gap there and I mean I think sex is a really difficult subject for people to talk about people get embarrassed about it they get ashamed it's stigmatized and that starts from a really young age you know girls in particular are you know 
taught about contraception and biology and the reproductive system, but nobody ever talks about pleasure. Nobody ever tells a teenage girl how to have an orgasm, how to make herself feel good. It's just not spoken about. And it's the 21st bloody century. I mean, you know, it's crazy. And school, RSHE, forget it. I mean, absolute jokes. And on top of that, society is constantly telling you not to be provoking, not to, you know, in order to stay safe. So it's like a sort of weird combination of kind of don't explore your own sexuality in your private time and don't inflict your own sexual selves. But also be a freak in the bedroom automatically because well, that's what's ob- expected of you. Obviously. And also all the boys are watching the, por- the porn. The porn. I said the 300 <laughs> year old woman. <laughs> the boys are watching the porn. And, yeah. uh, and and that might, I mean, I mean, teenage sex now must be, a, 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 must be much more complicated than it was 15 years ago. It's really, it is really complicated. And porn is a big deal in terms of, you know, it is the major form of sex education for for boys from the age of 11. I met an academic a while ago and she had written this very, very academic paper on anal sex in young people and it had been downloaded 45,000 times. It was not being downloaded by academics. You know, the curiosity (laughs) about that is just, it's just insane. But that is all driven by porn. And of course, then the expectation is on girls to perform and it's crazy Mm. crazy so what advice would you give a teenage girl just about to embark i i mean i i feel the issue really is confidence you know it's it's having the confidence to say no having the confidence to educate yourself having the confidence to understand your own body be assertive about what you want protect yourself and make demands you know I think women are too passive and men get it all their own way. I mean, I think that's true. That advice could be given to women of any age, really, couldn't it? You yeah. know, and I think about women who, are, who have been single for a while, have just become single or in long-term relationships because, of course, there's the perception that all the couples around us or even the single people are all at it like rabbits. And so we, we're, not, we're not sure what's expected of us in terms of how often we're meant to have sex, how much sex we're supposed to have. Well, there's lots of stats around that. Every 10 years, the National Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle Survey is run and they, you know, they measure how much sex people are having. And basically, we're not having very much at all, like three times a month maximum. And in that, if that's the average, you've got the outliers who are having an affair, who are having it 100 times a month. And then you have the people, possibly like us... (laughs) We're not getting anywhere close to those figures. (laughs) And I think you're right. I think the fact that we don't talk about sex means that people don't have those benchmarks. So the the perception is that everybody is at it rampantly and they're not, you know. And a a lot of couples, I would say around a third of couples, are not having any sex at all. Well, I read um, on your website that the definition of a sexless relationship is having sex less than 10 times a year. I was really astounded by that because most of the busy working couples I know and I talk to the women are probably managing about 10 times a year or, or, or not even. Sorry, and they no. would be horrified at the idea that they had a sexless relationship. Yes, they that's would. The, they, I mean, they, they, the they'd feel like it was the kiss of death. Yeah. Well, those figures came from an American academic called Denise Donnelly, and she did a study, and that was what she established, that about 15% of couples were not having any sex at all, and she established that figure of less than 10 times a year. I ran a survey quite a few years ago now, and I think I reached about 5,000 people, and the figures I got were much closer to 33% of couples who were having sex less than 10 times a year, if that. So, to be honest, I don't think we should get hung up about frequency. It's definitely about quality, not quantity. And, you know, lots of couples can't have sex. You know, they have ill health or they have disabilities or immobility and it's really difficult and yet if you have skin to skin contact if you have affection if you have respect if you have trust you know penetrative sex doesn't really matter i mean there's loads of ways of remaining sexually connected without you know missionary position i mean you know small children will do it it's very yes. very hard to have sex when there are when there are small children knocking around but you know particularly you know post lockdown when we've all been locked in the house and most people have just been listening to their partner flushing the loo around the clock and there hasn't been anything new there's been no new stimulation and you've been in stre- you know you haven't 
put the investment in, so you've been in stained tracksuit bottoms, and suddenly you're in non-sexual relationship mode. And, and the idea of trying to claw your way back feels both tiring and also exhausting. And I loved, I loved that you had written that, that there is wear and tear of all kinds on relationships. Sometimes they need a metaphorical lick of paint. How does one go about that from a standing start? I mean, it's definitely a mindset and it becomes increasingly difficult. So the longer you leave it, the harder it is. So at a certain point, you have to make a decision, which is generally something that you have to do together. And if you're married to somebody that doesn't like talking about sex and this idea that it should be spontaneous and it should be instinctive, well, actually, you do have to make a decision to have sex because it requires you to use energy. It requires investment. So, you, ha- you know, it has to be a conscious decision. I mean, Mariella Frostrop talks about maintenance sex, you know, doing it even if you don't feel like doing it. And to some degree, that is that is true. Obviously, you shouldn't have sex that you don't want. But I do think there is an argument for making an effort. I also think that separateness and autonomy is hugely important. And so one of the problems with being cooped up together was that we didn't have any space. And so we didn't see each other as individuals. We didn't have that time apart, you know. Sometimes I look at my husband, I see him maybe in the distance talking to other people and I see him as who he is, you know, a good looking guy, a separate person. And I think, you know, I really, I really rate him. I really respect him and I really want to be with him. But if you're together all the time, you don't really have that. Yeah, you just see him as an extension of you. So what are the steps you might take if you're with someone who doesn't really like talking about sex or or if, you know, there isn't much time, but you know that things are sliding? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there is always time to have a conversation. Definitely don't have it in the bedroom. Definitely don't have it when you're having sex. You know, have it in in, in a different space and, and, and just you know, be straightforward. I mean, why, why do we walk on eggshells around this subject? It's fundamentally the glue that holds couples together. It's the thing that differentiates you and your partner from you and your best mate. So it's really super important and you need to be straightforward about it. And, you know, if you're married to somebody or you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to talk about it, they're essentially telling you that they don't want to talk about you as a couple it's an actually it's actually a rejection of the relationship to some degree yeah I know a few women who feel incredibly rejected I know one woman who her husband wouldn't have sex with her she he, he just wouldn't I mean she'd sort of get drunk and, and and scream at him and he just wouldn't but he wanted to stay married and I don't know what you do with that I I, I, I think you have to call it you know I think you have to have a really serious discussion and get some professional help you know go and talk to somebody because people who cannot talk to their partner sometimes find it a lot easier to open up when there's a neutral third party present and it's never pleasant you know because there's always some home truths you know it's never one side is perfect and the other is a pain in the ass as you know generally responsibility gets shared around so it is difficult and people are scared of it but it really does transform relationships because it changes the way you see each other you start to see each other as individuals with your own needs your own feelings you need respect you see where you have transgressed and that understanding actually really radically changes your sex life you suddenly end up having amazing sex having not had any sex at all and you think what were we doing and it brings you so much closer together Mm. Um, I also I'm interested in what you were saying earlier about the idea of stop calling sex penetrative sex if you sort of I mean that that is the be all and end all that that is the end goal every time etc and actually sex is you know it's like sort of not having foreplay basically it's all one big umbrella it's touch it's everything and yeah. the idea that if we in our heads just think sex is I'm not having enough sex but actually you could have a brush a kiss all of those things which are you know stimulating and whatever but don't end up in just penetrative sex you know missionary position or whatever and I think that's important to re-educate people that way isn't it well I mean you know men really like penetrative sex it's you know it's, it's a means to an end it's it's great it feels really good But it takes a man 6.8 minutes to orgasm once penetrative sex begins. That long, Susie. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes two, right? But it takes a woman, on average, 14 minutes to orgasm once penetrative sex begins. So you've got a massive gap there. And unless you include other aspects to your sex life, it's a pretty one-sided interaction. 
Yeah, I mean, we hear about uh, sex therapists or, or relationship therapists giving advice where um, I remember hearing about, I wonder if this, if this would work or be fun. Where, do you remember a jar? And each people would put five little notes into it. And whenever they had a free night, they'd pull one out and they had to do whatever was on those, whether it was clean out the loft or have anal sex. They had to just sort of give it a go. <laughs> so I suppose the idea that you were, if someone else wants to do something, it is worth, you know, maybe there's a little bit of S&M, a little bit of light something. Do you think it's just worth giving it a go? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because how do you know... It's a bit like getting a kid to eat carrots, you know. Unless they try them, they're never going to know, are they? Suck it and see, right? <laughs> but I think it's, you know, even with people who've got sort of healthy sex life at our age, it's all, and when I say healthy, a huge sort of generalisation, but there's not much air around it. So you end up doing what is sort of quick, easy, familiar and successful. Everybody has mutual pleasure. It's the goal. So the same thing every time. And the worry is what if one person decides they want something wildly different? Yes, exactly. And the idea of like suddenly finding yourself swinging from the chandeliers is like sort of, you know, terrifying to people who are kind of quite routine based and... and Get and, it done in 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And they know that that's the window they've got. So what would you say to that? I mean, I think that routine is great because it, if you know what works, keep on doing it. But I also think that you can make sex much more exciting. And I mean, I know I'm, I'm constantly going on about props and toys and I love hotel rooms, oh my God, <laughs> and a suitcase full of amazing activities. I need specifics. What would you say might be the starter activities yes, that would be in the suitcase? Yes, come on. Change of scene hotel room. I want to know what's in the suitcase, please. Yes, please. The activity well, suitcase. The activity suitcase would probably have a um, some really good sex toys. It would have some lube. It would have some things like blindfolds. It might have some feathers, things for sensation, fabrics. It might have some little ties. It might have scents when you say really good sex toys do you mean specifically vibrators vibrating things it can be vibrating things although to be honest the newer sex toys which are are basically a kind of sonic air technology for women much 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 more effective i mean amazing mind-blowing two seconds and you're like ah what does that mean, Sonic? Oh, no, I've mean... read about these. They're all over the place. There's one called a Lilo, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So does it just sort of um, pulse at you rather than... Rather it, than... It, basically, <laughs> it basically blows air and vibrates at the same time. And it's just the sensation. It's very hard to describe. You've just got to try it. You should have one, girls. Okay. There's the Womanizer and I, the Lilo no, Sona. They're, they're, they're pretty amazing. Okay. And then for guys... Adds to cart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's also Tenga do really nice products that are, are made of... They're rather beautiful pastel colours made of beautiful kind of um, velvety touch, uh, soft sort of skin feel fabric. Um, they also do really funny egg-shaped Lobby masturbators for men that are pretty cool. What, that they can sort of pop on? Yeah, and they come in a little six pack, like an egg box. They're they're pretty cool as well. There's all there's there's so much fun stuff. Wouldn't it be fun to do a Christmas stocking and just make it like the activity suitcase? I I I think this activity suitcase is I we're onto something here. I'm quite looking forward to packing mine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well you do the shopping first. You have that lying around the house. (laughs) Yes, hotel rooms. Hotel rooms are a good because it's I guess it's also it's 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 neutral space, isn't it? It doesn't come with all the resentments and echoes and coziness. Of your shared I'll bedroom. Put, or I'll just put on a wash and, you know, while this is you happening... You can't put on a wash. Because... You can't go and, and, and fix something or change a light bulb because it's just not your problem. Clean sheets and a mini bar do it for me every time. <laughs> right, booze and sex. Because, of course, you know, you know, most, you know, many of us have one or two or three a night, most nights, you know, and we think it's going to loosen us up. Is there a sort of magic number for alcohol, as in how much is going to get you going and how much is going to, you know, shut you down? Well, I used to write with a guy called Thomas Dutterford, who was the Times doctor for 27 years. He's passed away, sadly. But his, he was a firm advocate of two glasses. He said, the first one makes you sharper intellectually and the second one relaxes you. And uh, after okay. that, yeah, that makes sense. absolutely in the, in the zone. Uh, but I actually think that 
sex in the morning is way better. Because... Yeah. Well, we have a thing about anniversary, you know, sex after big meals. Who wants to eat us? After you go steak, dinner you and, you have, and then you go home and you're like, you, or go back and you, to the hotel or whatever and you literally do not want one and more thing inside did, you. A friend of ours went out for a big sort of 10th wedding anniversary dinner and got home and said to her husband, I can't put anything else inside yes, me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. I'm too full. Sorry, it's going to have to be in the morning. The, the, the ideal, I mean, the morning is really lovely, but the ideal is before you go out, when you're getting dressed and you're putting on your makeup and you've got music on and you're having a little glass of champagne and that's lovely. After yeah. dinner, you're pissed, you're full. <laughs> it's not the same. Susie, what if you're single and you're slightly worried you're never going to have sex again? But at the, at the same time, you want to keep yourself sort of sexual and available and keep your light on so you know that it could happen. How do you keep that turning over when you're not, you know, there's no chance you're going to have sex twice a week at the moment? You've got to use it or lose it. I mean, that's, that's really the bottom line. And I mean, especially for older women, if you're in a relationship and you're not having sex very often, you've got to keep your bits working. You've got mm. to keep, you know, keep it all going. The, the best way to keep your pelvic floor intact is to keep having orgasms and you can give them to yourself. You don't necessarily need a partner to give them to you. <clears throat> so it's really, it is really important just for your general health. And it's so good for you. It's really good for your immune system. It's good for your heart. It's good for your brain. It's, it's fundamental to health and well-being. So let's say you're doing that, you're masturbating regularly, you're up for it, you've either just come out of a relationship or you've been single for a long time and, oh my God, there's a partner on the horizon and it's going to happen. How do you deal with the intimidation of taking your clothes off when you're not 19 uh, and you may or may not have had children, when no one except one man has seen you naked for 10 years or no man has seen you naked for 10 years? How to build that sort of confidence to, to you know, to once more enter the breach? Well... I think if somebody wants to have sex with you, your clothes don't hide everything. They know who you are. They know what you look like. They want to have sex with you. So what are you afraid of? Mm. Yeah, I think we all feel, we all tell ourselves that a really good bra or a really flattering dress will somehow, and the right light and the right angle, will somehow completely transform people's perceptions of us. I do think that dressing up... Um, great lingerie it makes you feel good anything that makes you feel good go for it you know but it should be about what makes you feel good not what about what you think they will like that's always the thing isn't it that is sexy and that's the confidence isn't it rather than the kind of projection of turning yourself into something that you think that someone else wants I mean I think confidence is sexy but a lot of people are not confident so You've got, to, you've got to work with what you've got. People do feel anxious and nervous, and especially if they're going on a date and they, they don't know the person very well. That is quite... But the really great thing about anxiety is your brain is not really able to differentiate between mild anxiety and sexual arousal. So the butterflies <laughs> in your stomach and, and the feelings that you get can actually be a turn on. So oh, there's a lot of benefits what it is. to it. I'm not anxious. I'm constantly just slightly turned on. Like just Seriously. That's all I am as I walk down the street. Just a little bit aroused. Great. That's so yeah. good. Yeah, you could reframe that. That might, that might work. And then when you have women who are, you know, moving through their 40s and starting to feel mm, just a little bit other and a little bit different from the way they've been accustomed to feeling, and it might or may or may not strike them that it might be the beginnings of the perimenopause, what does that potentially do to your sex life and your sex drive and how should you effectively deal with that? Well, you know, I mean, obviously everybody blames hormones, but the thing is that a woman who's in the midst of menopause who meets a new lover, feels no lack of sexual desire. She's as ready to go as she was when she was 30. So it isn't always hormones. It's often the situation that you're in. You know, you've got ageing parents, you've got pain in the ass teenage kids, you've got a job, you're hassled. You don't think that your husband is paying you the same amount of attention. You've put on 10 pounds. It's all those reasons. And let's be honest, it's not a particularly sexy time. <laughs> Yet, if you meet some guy who you re you're really attracted to and he's really attracted to you, all of those things disappear magically. 
So it is about your mindset, you know, giving yourself time, looking after yourself, recognising the stresses that you're under and making time for your relationship. And then, and then also, uh, teenagers, so on your Me Too app, it's me with three yeah. E's, isn't it? No, two E's and Sorry, two I'm O's. getting carried away. <laughs> it's me with two E's. Yeah. What are the most common sort of sexual questions that you get from young people? I'm wondering, because there are a lot of people wondering to how to talk to their younger sisters, nieces, nephews, children, godchildren about sex, how to honestly and helpfully reply. And, and even sometimes when the question might not be asked, because they, they, they are such thorny issues for kids. What do kids most often ask you? Well, it depends what age they are, but I am absolutely amazed at how little education young people have about sex. So we get asked questions about periods, about masturbation. We get a lot of stuff around sexuality and gender. We get stuff about relationships, just not knowing how to manage relationships. We get sexual abuse. What constitutes sexual abuse is what happened to me, an assault. The questions are endless. And that was one of the reasons I set the whole thing up was so that kids had a safe space to ask these difficult questions anonymously because it's really hard. You know, adults find it hard enough to talk about sex. Kids find it even harder. And in the absence of, you know, sex education in schools, you know, what what passes for sex education, you know, does not pass muster. They need somewhere where they can ask each other because... Again, in the same way that adults want to benchmark where they are, you know, are we having enough sex? Young people think everybody else is doing all sorts of stuff. And so they need a safe space to be able to say, actually, I haven't done that yet. Am I normal? And then they get replies from all their peers who go, yes, of course you're normal. I'm exactly the same. And I'm two years older than you, so stop worrying. So it's really about trying to kind of de-escalate some of those anxieties and normalise some of the problems. Mm. And that's why peer support is so effective, because a parent can, can, can tell a kid all sorts of stuff, but the kid won't believe it because it's coming from an adult. <laughs> they only really believe it when it comes from their peers. Um, and then, and when it comes to grown-up women, do you think that it helps? It, it would help us to talk to each other more about sex, honestly. Uh, yeah, I do. I really do. But I mean, I, I don't. I you look like the kind of women who would probably talk very easily to your friends about sex. But when I was growing up, I didn't. It wasn't a, a subject that we spoke to each other about honestly or openly. And I do think it would be helpful. I sometimes think women are a little bit competitive around things like that, so they keep it to themselves because they're afraid of looking foolish or being humiliated or not matching up. And there's a lot of bravado around sex, particularly for men. And I've actually had several letters at the Times from men who get very upset at the idea that their partners talk about their sex life with other people. They find that incredibly intimidating. So there is a kind of conspiracy of silence around the whole thing. And I don't think that's very helpful. I mean, you know, sex is sex. It's really meaningful and it's very bound up with love and chemistry and trust and affection. But it is, you know, it is a natural act that we all do. So I don't see why it is so shrouded in mystery. I think that sometimes, you know, if you meet someone new, all your girlfriends will go, oh, my God, what did you do? What position? Did it sting? Where were you? How was it? Did you come? And then suddenly the relationship gets serious, you move in together or you get a ring in your finger and suddenly it's rude to ask. Suddenly you don't, you don't, when someone, suddenly that suddenly this veil goes over everything and, and people stop talking about not just, you know, how much sex they're having and, and what the sex is like, but the whole nature of their relationship. It suddenly becomes, it's like a sort of, it's a sort of misdirected respect thing. I don't know what to do about the dogs. Listeners, Susie has three dogs and a wolf in the hall. <laughs> so that's what you can hear. I don't know. Um, yeah, they call it your <laughs> private life for a reason. And that's because when you're invested in the relationship, your loyalty is to the relationship. And so you're protecting the relationship. And, you know, as I was saying, men in particular don't like their private life being spoken about. They feel it's like a breach of trust. So there is that, you know, protective barrier around what goes on within the relationship. I think it's a sort of broader societal problem. You know, the sex that we see in magazines and in newspapers doesn't really reflect what's going on in the domestic bedroom, does it? I think that's, you know? I think that's so true. And I think the other thing is, is that there's a sort of, you know, 
especially when you get to sort of, you know, 46 like me or whatever, that you should know by now, even though actually the goalposts change quite a lot, as we've discussed about the different ways, that you sort of, that it's sort of like, if you've got a question about sex, it's a bit, it's You should be able to that, answer it yourself. Basically by now, with all the sex that you've had and all the different, All you know, the all sex the, that you've all had. The terrible sex <laughs> I've had, all the great sex I've had, but you know what I mean? That you should know. And of course, it isn't that, it isn't simple. And so that you feel like, you know, the idea that, I can't remember someone was talking about someone and said, well, you know, she must have a sort of magic vagina. I suddenly thought, oh my God, do I have a magic vagina? Is my vagina good? I mean, I've never had any complaints. But, still. but you know, this, uh, this constant, you know, like you said, competitive, but also worried that somehow our parts are... Oh, I think we worry about that from the moment we realise we have parts. Yes, exactly. Like, that they're oh, su- is substandard. It is it this? Is, is it, it bent? Is it strong enough? Yes, exactly. Is it enormous? <laughs> is it shallow? Exactly. Or if you can't, for example, you know, come through penetrative sex or whatever... You know, and you've you made it so clear with the sort of time. I didn't even know that that there was such a huge gap between the amount of time for a man and a, for a woman. So of course it's impossible. But anyway, yeah, the maths doesn't the sex maths, maths doesn't sex work. Sex maths doesn't work. But you know, and I think the thing is, is that you get you feel slightly sort of you know shamed into silence by the fact that you should know. You yeah, should you're just know. like yep, sex tick. That's yes, done exactly. Uh, it's it's really difficult. I mean, one of the problems for women, of course, is that the most sensitive part of our body happens to be outside our vagina, not inside it. So that causes problems from the get-go. <laughs> and, you know, the, the the fact that, you know, in Hollywood, in in fact, in, in every, you know, form of media, sex is penetrative sex. Trying to unwind that when you're a teenage girl and you're thinking, but that doesn't work for me, as it doesn't for 75% of women. That's a really big hurdle for women to get beyond. And it's only... It's really only recently, in in the last decade, that people have started being very honest about that and talking more openly about it. And, you know, men don't have an excuse anymore for not understanding that, you know, female biology is different. However, they carry on regardless because porn, the, you know, proliferation of free porn and, you know, pneumatic Barbies who come at the drop of a hat and real life women who are too intimidated to say to say no something. i didn't come and this is how it could happen yes yeah. exactly and so they end up faking it so none of that helps you know and men might justifiably say that if a female partner doesn't say what they want how the hell are they supposed to know what to do ultimately you have to you have to come from the perspective that men want to do the right thing they want to have good sex with a partner they want to satisfy their partner and so you have to meet them halfway and tell them what works for you and that always ends up going back to communication I'm constantly banging on about it but if you have an easy open relationship with your partner and you're able to talk about sex you're able to laugh at the stuff that goes wrong then you're going to get it all right it's it's Mm. the it's the embarrassment and the shame and the fear of humiliation that makes people hold back. And you're right, that, that sudden seriousness that can overtake us when sex walks in the room. Completely, and the idea of sexiness and being sexy. That sexiness has to be very po-faced. Exactly, and, and pouty. mysterious and kind of, and not, you know, noisy, playful, playful and, and kind laughy. of laughy. Exactly. Yeah, kind of but I mean, sex, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous sex, so you should, you should laugh at it. It's... it's it can be really incredibly comical and it goes wrong all the time you know so the i and also no one ever teaches us how to have sex so it's absolutely a matter of trial and error mostly error until you figure out you know what works for you and it's probably trial and error every time you meet a new partner and trial and error every time you're trying to reignite your sex life with an existing partner so you've got to be willing to you know dust yourself off and try again I mean, I think the, tr- it, it's, the tragedy is that actually the stats show that um, in our lifetime, we'll only have about seven sexual partners. Uh, that seems incredibly <laughs> low. <laughs> yes. And thanks, Susie. Moving on swiftly on. <laughs> Um, we are going to go and um, and pack I'm order our, this bloody thing. our activity suitcase. Yes, hello Lilo. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to let everyone know oh, how I get on. It's yeah. your birthday coming up. 
Um, Susie Godson, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Your app is called Me Too with two E's. The Sex Book is your award-winning book. You've written two other ones. You can be found in the Saturday Times as their fantastic sex columnist. And we're incredibly grateful to have had you on the podcast. Thank you. Please, will you come again? Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Innovo. They are offering listeners £55 off the full kit using the code MIDULT55. Time to give inner strength a whole new meaning. And stay tuned for some pelvic floor wisdom with Innovo's co-inventor, Dr. Ruth Marr. Hello again, everybody. So throughout this series, we are asking, when is a pelvic floor not a pelvic floor? When it affects your self-esteem, your confidence, your sex life, your self-image. And so we are delighted to welcome Dr. Ruth Marr to the podcast. Now, for Dr. Ruth, pelvic floors are a passion. She spent years on the front line of women's health and rejects the idea that leaks, sexual self-doubt and pelvic floor weakness are just a normal part of everyday life and that women should put up with it. It's one of the reasons she co-invented Innovo. So here she is to give us some of the ins and outs. Dr. Ruth Ma, hello and welcome. Thank you for coming to see us. Hello, Annabelle. Thank you. And Emily, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. So if we just dive in and you know share the statistic that one in three women suffer symptoms of pelvic floor weakness. Why do you think that, you know, leaking and all the other problems uh, is one of the last taboos in women's health? I think the main reason is most likely due to embarrassment. And sadly to say, it's expected that women leak something. We you know we have periods every month and women just put up with it. And I know from various studies I've read during my PhD from the Journal of the American Medical Association, for example, they said that few women actually even seek care or talk about it. And there was one interesting study in my lit review that looked at uh, women's perceptions about the cause of their incontinence. And sadly, a third of them attributed to just being female. Because it's not just to do with urinary incontinence, is it? It can also be to do with your sex life, with your posture, with your back. I mean, can we ask you, you know, in very much in layman's terms, to describe to us exactly what the pelvic floor is and what it does? I mean, we we use it as a stick to beat ourselves with, but most of us don't even know what, what it is. Well, the pelvic floor really is it's an invisible hammock of muscles inside the pelvis. And that's part of the problem because we're not even aware they're there until something goes wrong. And it also includes the, the nerves associated with all the muscles in there and the ligaments and the connective tissue. You may have heard of fascia and that sort of stuff. And those, all those structures help maintain continence and support the pelvic organs. And of course, we're never aware until something goes wrong. But if you have a compromise to any of those structures, including the muscles, which are very important, um, those, that dysfunction is associated with a variety of conditions such as several different types of urinary incontinence, even faecal incontinence and uh, pelvic organ prolapse and also sexual dysfunction. And the thing is that knowing about the pelvic floor and doing something about the issues are not the same. So there's like two different sticks there. You know, see, we beat ourselves with. So what we do know is that pelvic health is vital for overall health for men and women, but mostly for women because of the trauma that goes through the pelvis from you know the teenage years up until men postmenopause. I think it's really interesting what you said about the trauma that happens from kind of teenage until like postmenopause to women. It is an extraordinary pattern and we learn to put up with an ex- like so much invasion, so much sort of matter. And uh, and you're right. And then so then we take it when something goes wrong, we continue putting up with it because we just learn to so... tolerate, don't we? Everything that that happens. We just and I'm sure that's why, um, you know, you're saying there's a, there's a six month waiting list, but I'm sure the vast majority don't even seek help. Just to dive in, what is the difference between stress incontinence and urge incontinence? How do you know which type you have if you want to seek help? Very good question. Well, stress incontinence is usually due to exertional stress. So that's like jumping up and down the trampoline, exercising, bending down even to pick up your child, <laughs> lifting heavy objects, coughing, sneezing. We've all heard that. And laughing. Yes, horribly, and laughing. Yes. Don't make me laugh or I wet myself. I mean, and I think that normalizes the condition, right? And what happens is during stress incontinence, when you cough, sneeze or laugh or exercise, um, you build up pressure in your abdominal area and that pushes down on the bladder that has urine in it. And unfortunately, if you have compromised or weak pelvic floor, the pressure from above exceeds the resistance from below and then you leak. So it's and nothing to do with having a small bladder nothing. or a weak and, bladder. And, no. And I hate that, that uh, 
the way some people describe it as bladder weakness. And I have to say that's post- that's been put forward by the pad companies because if you have bladder weakness, there's no hope for you because you have not got volitional control of your bladder, so to say. You can't change it. That's part of the central nervous system, whereas the muscles are part of the peripheral nervous system and you can do something about muscles. You can strengthen them. You can change the coordination. And, you know, I don't know if you knew that 65% of women with stress incontinence will leak during sex. So you can imagine how this condition affects intimacy and relationships in general and, and overall quality of life. Wow. Now, if you want to look at, yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's um, one in three women has this condition. And it's not just older women, you know, there's teenagers have it as well. What's terrible is, is that exactly like you said, it's a muscular sort of issue that you can actually fix with correct exercise. I think I am only just kind of grasping that, that the idea that it's actually, that the pub, that it is all muscular rather than some kind of mysterious, like almost floor spelt F-L-A-W, do you know what I mean? Like the pelvic floor. Yes, exactly. A mysterious failing, exactly. And it's not just the weakness, because if it was only weakness... As the day went on and you're up against gravity, your bladder would, would continually leak, right, if the muscles were that weak. But it's only during the times of the coughing, sneezing, laughing. And that, to me, is, if I use my little hand as a sphincter <laughs> muscle, this sphincter isn't, com- isn't coming on and closing quickly enough. And the sphincter control is modulated by the tone of your pelvic floor muscles. So that's why they're so important. So for me, it's more of a coordination and maybe a mild weakness of the pelvic floor. Coordination is imperative to keeping the holes closed. Keep your holes closed. I want to keep those holes closed. (laughs) Keep your holes closed, ladies. What about urge incontinence? Well, urge incontinence is, that's the name of that has been changed over the years by the International Continence Society, which headquartered in the UK. And that's typically leakage that occurs with a sudden sensation or a compelling desire to go. You know, you might come home after being at the shops and you put your key in the door and all of a sudden you're wet and you just can't hold it. And it's sometimes been called overactive bladder, but they're not quite the same. There's about six different types of incontinence. Whereas overactive bladder is um, like a constant urge to urinate without the leakage. So there's a bit of an overlap there. So there's many different types of incontinence, but mixed incontinence is more common during and after menopause for older ladies. And that, sadly, is a combination of urgency, incontinence and SUI. So you can imagine trying to live with that. So, you know, the, the secret is early intervention or prevention and early intervention. Now, you know, it was very fashionable, maybe five to seven years ago, everyone was launching these internal pelvic floor exercises. And I got my hands on a couple of them and they're still sitting in their boxes. I just sort of couldn't face it. But there's something about the Innovo shorts, which makes them feel very accessible. You know, it really makes them feel like a personal trainer. I mean, how did you come up with the idea of the shorts? How did you come up with the idea of doing it externally? I really wanted to think outside the box, so to speak. So, <laughs> At literally, literally outside, outside the, the box. box. <laughs> And I knew a lot about East Ham. I'd learned a lot in my undergrad and my master's and doctoral program for PT. So I used this system called Multipath Technology, which was developed in concert with a company in Ireland and UCD. So essentially what that lets you do is send in multiple paths across the pelvis. Um, if you think of little TENS machines, you typically only have two electrodes or four with two channels and the stimulus goes from one electrode to the other. But this allowed me to have eight electrodes on either side and put the cross the impulses. And that does two things. It optimizes eliciting a contraction in all those muscles and some other ones. But it also reduces the fatigue ability associated with conventional stem using those vaginal probes or the stick-on electrodes. And it spreads the current over a wide area. So you can put a lot of current inside and get into the deep muscles. And that's the benefit of using it from outside and of course it's easy to put on a pair of shorts everybody puts pants on every day and as you say you know that you you know you don't fatigue so basically the shorts are doing all the work and you're getting all the results right they are but it also teaches you how to do the kegel as well that was the initial inspiration because i was frustrated with myself not with the patients even using ultrasound imaging that whatever i was saying verbally and whatever they were receiving uh, they just couldn't do the contraction so well, I think a lot of us are very out of touch with that part of our body. Yes, you know, well, part it, it, of the reason is because you don't see any movement of a joint. Like you can show people how to do a bicep curl or a squat and they, they're, they're visual. We are visual and they're looking at me doing this. But, you know, I can tell everybody I'm doing a kegel, but they can't tell by looking at me. You know, I'm doing them now, but you can't tell. I'm doing them. We're all doing them now. I'm doing Dr. them. I'm Ruth. doing them now. We're all doing them now. <laughs> but the idea was to teach people, women how to, and men, how to do these exercises, so they wouldn't always have to use a Nova when you know they 
they see a de- decrease or an a- abolition of, of um, symptoms, but they could do their kegels in the shower, in the car, since Starbucks have in the queue or whatever. Um, now, so it has just, two benefits. Just well, well talking of, of more benefits, just to put the very, you know, the very intoxicating phrase urinary incontinence to one side, what can this potentially do for your sex life? Well, there's tons of research out there to say if you have a good functional pelvic floor, it improves your sex life. Tons of it. It's all over PubMed or Medscape, if you read the, the studies. It also is very good because it increases blood flow to the area. And as you get older, you know, things atrophy because we have, we have the depletion in estrogen for ladies uh, and things start to dry up. So women will tell me that they just it feels more vibrant down there for them when they're having sex. And it doesn't feel as dry because the, it, it has increased the blood flow. I haven't studied that part of it yet because all I wanted to do was stop women leaking in their pants, to be honest, because it was such a nightmare for them. And I've seen over the years they led really like very small lives for a lot of people with no hope. I will tell you a story about my <laughs> my first study in UCD. Device didn't look like it did now. It was sort of like chaps. It was a wrap. And um, the ladies took the devices home and came in every so often for different measurements. And I got a phone call one day from the lady saying... Uh, my device has broken down, I can't use it. So I said, okay, where do you live? I'll drop you off another one. So just as I was getting into her driveway, her husband came in on his motorcycle and he said, are you Dr. Mara? And I said, yes, I am. You can call me Ruth. I don't really go by the doctor. Uh, oh, that device of yours is magic. And he's doing this with his fist, making a big fist. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? And he said, we've had sex when it's on. It's magic. And I had to exclude her from my study, obviously, because you know, she wasn't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> Oh my um, goodness, actually using it as a oh sex toy. God. I mean, with those electrical pulses, you know, ripping through you. Wow, that would be something. Well, not only through I her, mean, but he got the benefit of the squeeze. <laughs> so, But if your muscles are contracting more, more efficiently and more effectively, then it's going to affect your orgasm as well, right? Yes. And I've had ladies say that if you stand up and lean over a table, lying on a pillow, because you want to protect your back, keep your back straight, and internally rotate your hips, you can change the focus of the, the stimulation so it could go more towards the front. So you ladies can try that later on. And uh, some of them didn't want to give the devices back in the initial study. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say, Annabelle and I have had many discussions while wired up about how it definitely can get quite punchy, but it's also, it's quite a refreshing tingle, yes, I have to tell you. Yes. I, like, I always oh, say, I wish with... I had taken a photograph of the lady's face the first time they got the first contraction. Because it's nearly like, <laughs> the guilty feeling of oh that's odd I haven't had that sensation before it's quite different but also what's so funny is that you are because you are effectively I know Dr Ruth would recommend standing but I've definitely been sitting watching television while doing it and so it feels like it's rather amazing feeling like everything is going on inside but externally nothing is going on and I think for us I feel like that it's a sort of like a little secret it's like I'm I'm having a really serious, what did you call it? Hit for the fanny. Yes, high intensity training for your fanny. There you go. And your success rate is 87%? Yes, and some of them had had their condition for 15 or 20 years, which is really insane when you think that women are putting up with this for this long. Thank you for coming up with this device and thank you for coming to talk to us about it. And, um, You're very welcome. You know, and we're, we're doing very well with it, aren't we, Em? Yeah, I, I mean, we're extremely proud of my... I'm very <laughs> proud of myself. You've been listening to Annabel Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe.